Corinthians, we are going to be reminded of this foolishness that is the preaching of the gospel and the so-called wisdom of the world. And we're going to see that God extends his kingdom through the foolishness of the cross and that the wisdom of the world is brought to nothing. So if you will, join with me as we um, follow, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to begin with chapter 1, verse 18 this morning, and I will read till the end of the chapter, verse 31. So listen to the inerrant word of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Well, let me give you a little bit of a a review of where we've been. I'll follow that up with a little bit of a preview, and then we'll actually dive into the text. So here's here's our review. Paul begins, as we remember in verse 1, Paul begins his his letter reminding the Corinthian readers of their identity, that they are saints. And remember, they are saints by calling. Make, don't forget that. They are saints by calling. They are not saints because of a virtuous life. God did not make them saints because they are virtuous. They are not saints because they did a miracle, as the Roman church might say, that you need to do a miracle and live a virtuous life, and then maybe a hundred years later, you can become a saint. They are saints by God's calling. God called them and made them what they were not. That's kind of how we've been working with this word calling, that God, when God calls, He transforms them from one thing into another thing. They were not saints. They were not holy ones. They were not set apart. They were not children of God. But but by God's calling, they are now saints. And they are not alone. But there are other saints all spread around the, the kingdom. 
all around the empire, all around the world. There are other saints. There are other people who are called by God. They are not somehow set on a pedestal that they are saints by calling, but God has called others as well. And then God has been gracious to them. God has given them gifts. He's given them wisdom and knowledge and and speaking gifts and all kinds of wonderful gifts. And we'll talk about those things much later in the book of of 1 Corinthians. But God has called them and then gifted them for the work of ministry and for the blessing of others. And they they took their, their, their special privileges, some of these gifts, and they became very divisive. And they... And they became arrogant as though they were superior to one another. And then Thomas dealt with the divisiveness last week that this divisiveness has no place because God made you who you are. God gifted you for what you are. There is no place for this divisiveness. There is no place for this arrogance. And yet we might look at the book of 1 Corinthians and look at all the problems. They're suing one another and they're permitting just vile sexual immorality and allowing it and, and thinking and celebrating it. And they are, like I said, they are, um, there's a, a class warfare, the rich against the poor and all sorts of things. And we might think that the problem with the Corinthians church is that they are permissive or that they are suing one another or that they are classist. But they are, that is not their problem. Even divisiveness that comes as the fruit of pride really isn't the issue. There is a much more fundamental issue, and that's what we're going to end up dealing with today. So as we look at where we're going to go by preview today, we should see, we, we want to see that their divisiveness, um, communicated by their party slogans. Last week we saw, we heard um, Thomas talk about, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas and I follow Christ. These party loyalties indicate truly an overvaluing of human wisdom and an undervaluing of the gospel. This is their fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is not so much that they are divisive, but they have overvalued human wisdom and undervalued the power of the cross. We'll see this explained today. And Paul is going to address this fundamental issue in verses 18 through 31. So I've broken this down into three big categories um, and we'll see how we do in getting through them. But the first one, uh, the first big category I want to deal with is the word of the cross. The word of the cross. The cross is fundamental to the Christian faith. And the second big issue I want to deal with is consider your calling. There's that word again. And finally, it is, um, I think, abundantly clear in this chapter, but it is also one of the key beliefs of this church, and that is that salvation is of the Lord. That is, salvation is 100% God. And this is what we discussed in the Doctrines of Grace on Wednesday night, that salvation is of God and God alone. It is not a cooperation between men and God. Man's dead. He doesn't cooperate with God. Why? Because he's dead. God raises the dead. This is the picture of salvation. So we'll get into that. Now, I think that this passage of text is so needed. I'm glad I had a couple of weeks to deal with it because, oh man, it was, it is awesome. 
Sometimes I just, I would study it and I'd have to like, like for 10 or 15 minutes, I'd have to get up and go for a walk. It's just, I, I can't absorb what I'm, what I'm reading. But here's the bottom line. This is why the church today needs verses 18 through 21, because a crossless Christianity is no Christianity. And we live in a culture that is slowly or sometimes even more rapidly eliminating the cross, the message of the cross from their proclamation. They may have a cross up on the wall, but it is not coming out of their pulpits. And we live in a culture where offending another is almost enshrined dogma. And here's the bottom line, the cross is offensive. And we live in a culture that don't, don't offend. Don't offend. The cross is offensive. I will offend you today. I won't offend you. The cross is offensive. And Christ's disciples must, must be diligent to remember Christ crucified. This is the problem in the Corinthian church. They've, they've overvalued human wisdom, pragmatism, what works. And they've undervalued the cross. So in our church, in our families, in our witness, in our ethic, and in our, at, in our outreach, and in every sphere of our life, the cross must remain central. So with that, let's look at our text. And it begins with perhaps one of the most jaw-dropping sentences. And I would encourage you to memorize this verse. I, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul begins, I mean, he's just starting his letter. He's just, and he's getting right into it. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Paul begins with um, the word of the cross, a reminder of the centrality of the cross in the Christian community. And Paul has just mentioned this in verse um, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power and the word of the cross. Not my eloquence. The word of the cross is the power of God. And here, Paul, in this very first statement, categorizes or splits the world into two groups and two worldviews. Two groups and two worldviews. The first, the groups that he splits the, the world into is those who are on the road to ruin and those who are on the road to life. There are two groups, according to Paul. Those who are on the road to ruin, those who are on the road to life. That's it. John picks this up and he talks about light and darkness. Same thing. Those who are on the road to ruin, those who are on the road to life. And then he divides the world into two worldviews. Those that are centered on human wisdom and those that are guided by divine wisdom. And we're going to talk about those two groups and those two worldviews. So that's just an overview of where we're going in this first point of the word of the cross. And the first thing we... Paul says is the word of the cross is foolishness. 
I guess we should first make sure we understand what we're talking about when let's define what we mean by the word of the cross. What is the word of the cross? It is the power of God, but what is the word of the cross? Well, I'll be very simple with this. It's not that complicated. It is the gospel message. The word of the cross is the gospel message. We see this in verse, um, well, first of all, in verse 17, Christ did not send me to, to baptize, but to preach what? The gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest what the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then we also see it in verses 23 and 24 for But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Here's a great way. I love the way Paul describes uh, the gospel in in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is a great word. It just simply means placarded. It's like a billboard. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was, his crucifixion was a billboard of what God is doing. It is placarding of Christ crucified and it has two effects. The gospel then has two effects. This placarding. In other words, Paul isn't saying, I am going to try to convince you of the gospel or the power of the cross through my, uh, my logistical reasoning or my philosophical um, acumen, but rather all I'm going to do is I'm going to put up a billboard of Christ crucified. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to placard Christ as being crucified. And it's going to have two effects. The message of the cross is considered foolish by those who are perishing. This idea that Christ died for sins is foolishness to those who are perishing. It does not fit with human reason. It disregards power. It disregards prestige and education, status and intellect. Everything that is highly regarded by worldly systems and philosophical systems, the cross completely disregards. It pays no attention to worldly or earthly wisdom. It pays no attention to prestige or education, your status in life. It disregards that completely. And the cross of Christ has always been attacked. Always. We read way back in church history all sorts of means by which people have attacked and tried to diminish the cross. Everything from those who have suggested that it was not Christ who was crucified. That that somehow God rescued Christ at the last moment. Somebody else got crucified. This then got picked up by Mohammed who actually says Christ wasn't crucified. Judas was or somebody else was crucified. There's always been this idea. No way. No way was Christ crucified. No way could the Messiah re, um, uh, come to such an ignoble faith. Fate. People have then in the medieval days put, put Christ 
cross as an example of self-sacrificial love. That's all it is. It's not about atoning for sins. It's not about God about God's wrath being propitiated. It is just a, a great example of self-sacrificial love. And it denies the atoning work of the cross. Was Christ's sacrifice at Calvary a great example? Absolutely. But it was much, much more. Today, progressive, progressive realm of the so I want I don't want to say the Christian faith because I don't think they're Christians. But so-called progressive Christianity would consider the cross cosmic child abuse. That's their words. That God the Father killed His Son. This is cosmic child abuse. You see, the cross has always had its detractors. The cross has always been foolishness to men. It is foolishness to the wisdom of this day today. So, we are not surprised by the rejection of the message. Have you ever shared the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, and somebody looks at you like you're just completely out of it? Yet don't be surprised because your message is foolishness. It's folly. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Literally, those who are on the road to ruin. They are on the road to ruin and your message of salvation is stupid. So the message is considered foolish by those who are perishing. But here's the other effect. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, there's a number of things we can we can look at here. But one of the things that probably stands out is, huh, that's kind of interesting, those who are being saved. Why doesn't say those who are saved? Those who are being saved. Well, you, if you've been around church for a while, perhaps you've heard uh, a pastor or a preacher or a Bible study leader say that um, you were saved, you're being saved, and you're going to be saved. Maybe you've heard something like that. You were saved in the past, you're presently being saved, and in the future you will be saved. See, here's the thing. When we, when we study God, when we study the teachings of the Bible about God, one of the, the topics that we run across very quickly is the providence of God. Now, providence of God is just a fancy theological way of saying that God is in control. God is in control. And when we unpack this idea of God's providence, we we, we learn a few things. This is why theology is important, because it just enriches our understanding of who we are in Christ. Well, one of the things we learn about God's providence is that God preserves what he creates. God preserves what he creates. And a great example is in Colossians where it says that Jesus Christ upholds all of creation. He upholds all of creation. That is, he preserves it. If God, if Christ let go of his creation, there would be nothing left but the Trinity. Hebrews talks about Christ. Chapter 1 talks about Christ bearing all things. He preserves, he creates this world and then he preserves it. But God not only preserves that which he, he, he creates, he, he also rules over it and that is that he brings it to its appointed end. 
This is a great thing. God is going to bring this world to its appointed end. He preserves it for now, but he will bring it to its appointed end. He will bring you to your appointed end. He will bring this earth to heaven and earth will come to its appointed end. This is what God does in creation. This is what God does in the new creation. He preserves the new creature. He preserves you by his mighty right hand. He has saved you in the past. He preserves you in the present and he will deliver you to your appointed end. He is in the process of saving you. He saved you in the past. He's preserving you now and he will deliver you to your appointed end. This is what God does. This is what God does in creation. This is what God does with a new creation, one who is born again. What a great comfort. This is why Paul can say the message is to those who are being saved. It is the power of God. God has saved you in the past, preserves you in the present, and will deliver you to your appointed end. The word of the cross, that is Christ bearing our sins in his body on the tree, has a real effect. Christ's crucifixion actually does something. It actually has an effect, not a potential effect. It actually does something. The work of Christ actually takes away sin. Actually takes away sin. Doesn't make forgiveness of sin possible. It actually takes away sin. This is the power of God. Folks, a crossless Christianity is a powerless Christianity. The word of the cross divides into two groups. In other words, we are not saved on gender or race or status or what have you. The two groups are not based on physical or socioeconomic aspects. But the cross divides people into two groups. That is their destiny. Those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Paul then says, you don't have to take my word for it. Look to the Jewish scriptures. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will I will thwart. Remember, there is a Jewish um, population here in Corinth and certainly in this particular church. And so Paul makes haste to, to support what he just stated in verse 18 by saying, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. Um, I will thwart. This comes out of Isaiah chapter 29, 14. We should be aware of what Isaiah is talking about um, that that's going on in that particular passage of text that Paul is, is discussing. It's very, very relevant. In chapter, I'm just going to read chapter 29, verses four, Isaiah chapter 29, uh, verses 14. I'm going to go through 16. Uh, I'll start with 13. I'll start with chapter 1, verse 1. No. Just kidding. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. 
Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord, your counsel, whose deeds are in dark and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he does not make me of the thing formed? Say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? I'll stop with, I'll stop there. So, what's going on here? Well, we see a couple of things. These people draw near with their lips. They honor me with their lips and but they, but they do not honor me with their hearts. Therefore, I will do wonderful things. The wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of the discerning men will, will be hidden. Here's what's going on. Jerusalem is under threat of attack by the Assyrian Empire, a king, a general by the name of Sennacherib, and he is threatening to come up against Jerusalem and destroy it. So, what does the king of Jer- what does the king of Jerusalem do? What's the political maneuver? How do I make certain that this empire does not crush us? Well, all of the political wise men said, "Here's what you do. You make allies." You make allies with the unbelieving nations. Go get Egypt. Get them on your side. You need their chariots. You need their horsemen. You need their their bows and arrows. You need their foot soldiers. You need their resources. Go get Egypt and they will help you. That is the political wisdom of the day. And God says that's foolishness. Here's what you need to do. You need to believe that I will deliver you from Sennacherib. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm living in those days and somebody says, go get Egypt to ally with us and all of their chariots and stuff, I'm saying, yeah, that sounds good. Otherwise, you know, you're going to trust, like, what? The Word of God? God says, here's the thing. I'm going to turn their wisdom into foolishness. And my foolishness will be their wisdom. So this is exactly what Paul's saying. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. So God's plan, that is God's word, did not comport with human wisdom. The politically wise counsel for military alliances with foreign nations, but God's word, which was foolish to the experts, was to trust him for deliverance. That appeared to be weakness. You're being weak. You're, you need to, to fight power with power. Instead, God says that you will, you will be victorious through weakness. And in his natural sinful condition, people will never understand God. The wisdom of the wise will never come and arrive at God Almighty. So, Paul says, the word of the cross is foolishness to the perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let me back this up. Let me show you a historical event that supports what I'm saying. And then he goes on, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So here's the observation. Where's the wise person? Where are your wise men? Where are your sages? 
You see, human philosophy and reason have not resulted in godly wisdom. Human reason and human philosophy has not reconciled anybody to God ever. So where are your wise men? They have not brought you closer to God. They have not brought you nearer to God. They have not given you understanding of the, the work of Christ on the cross. They've done none of that. Where are they? They are useless to you. Worldviews that spurn what God has revealed result in being spurned by God. Your highly regarded wise men have not brought you any closer to God. The wisdom that you hold dear does not draw you near to God. Those who rely on human reasoning will not arrive at God. We're going to see that in chapter 2. Chapter 2 is one of my favorites. But we are going to see that people can't even understand the word of God unless the Holy Spirit illumines for them. Your philosophies, where's your wise men? They haven't gotten you close to God. They haven't brought you to forgiveness of sins. They have not redeemed you from the the curse of your sin. They have not done anything for you. What they've actually taught you is foolishness. Well, if the sages and the wise men and the discerners cannot bring us to God, then what does lead us to God? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What does lead to God? What leads to God is the foolishness of God. And I'm going to put foolishness in quotes. Do you see how... The gospel is the antithesis of human wisdom. God's foolishness actually affects the forgiveness of sins and actually reconciles us to God. What could not be affected by human wisdom is accomplished by God's, quote, foolishness. The foolishness of the cross. Weakness. A weak, suffering servant. Foolishness to the wise men. But wisdom from the divine perspective. The folly of our preaching, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Your wise men cannot save people, but the foolishness of the gospel actually saves men from their sins. The folly of what we preach, and what are we preaching? We are preaching a crucified man is your savior. This is why it's foolishness. Now, there's quite a bit of a cultural divide here. Because you and I are not offended by the cross. We're sitting here today. We got one right back there. Nobody came in and said, take that thing down. None of us are offended by Christ crucified. In fact, many... I won't look too too closely, but I'm going to assume that many of us have jewelry in the shape of a cross. We have t-shirts with a cross. We have bumper stickers with a cross. We are not offended by the cross. I don't I don't say that to our to our shame. I'm saying that there is a cultural divide. You see, first century Roman citizens were offended by the cross. You did not use that term at the dinner table. You did not use that term in polite society. You didn't even use that term in impolite society. It was a 
horrific term. It was a sign of shame. It was a sign of degradation. It was one of those things, I don't know if they did this in those days, but if a kid used that term, they would wash their mouth out with soap. It was repugnant to ancient societies. And the idea of a crucified Messiah? That's a contradiction in terms. Messiahs aren't crucified. Saviors don't die. To proclaim a crucified Jew from backward Judea was the divine The divine being sent from God and the coming judge of the world was cultural madness. To proclaim a crucified Jew from backward Judea was the divine being sent from God and a coming judge of the world was just utter madness. Foolishness. Are you telling me that a sa- saviors don't die? Saviors are victorious. They're powerful. They, they crush their enemies. They are not defeated. And certainly not crucified like a common criminal, the worst of criminals. A crucified Messiah is a contradiction in Paul and now Paul, or a contradiction in terms and now Paul is stating that the one crucified is the Lord of the universe. Foolishness. Foolishness, they would say. The Jews would say, show me a sign. That makes no sense. The Savior of the world, the Messiah that we have been waiting for, is not one who ends up on a Roman cross. Show me a sign. You see, Jews were not interested in speculative philosophy. They believed that God actually acted in history and that God made a covenant with them. They're saying, show me a sign. We already have signs. We, we've seen, we, we know that God parted the Red Sea and delivered His people from bondage. The cross didn't deliver anybody from bondage. I didn't see that happen. The cross didn't part any Red Sea. That never happened. Show me a sign. They failed to recognize what the, was that the cross did part the veil in the temple. Show me a mighty deed of deliverance. I don't see it in the cross. Show me a sign. Otherwise, I'm not believing what you say. That's just silly what you're talking about, Paul. It's foolishness. Gentiles, on the other hand, are like going, I don't care about sign. Crucified messiahs, crucified men, criminals are not saviors. Criminals are not saviors. Greeks believe that the answer to life's problems were found in human wisdom. To Disregard such wisdom would render one a barbarian. Paul, you're a barbarian. You're not coming to us with wisdom and eloquent speech and rhetoric that is so highly valued. Give us some of that and convince us through uh, the, the laws of persuasion or the art of persuasion. Do that and maybe we'll believe you. Paul says, no, I'm placarding Christ crucified. That's what I'm doing. Not in human wisdom, not in eloquent speech. Here's the cross, Christ crucified, paying the penalty of your sin. That's what I'm doing. To the Greeks, what use is a crucified Messiah? We have sages. So Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. You demand a sign. You want wisdom. I preach Christ crucified. 
and it is called the power and wisdom of God. Christ's death on the cross actually propitiated, that's just a fancy word for saying, that Christ's death on the cross actually appeased the wrath of God against sin. And there are probably people who will hear that statement and shudder. That sounds foolish. You're telling me that God has wrath and it needs to be propitiated or appeased? Why don't you just get a young maiden and find some volcano? You backwoods hillbilly who knows nothing. What an idiot you are. But yet, I said, the cross actually accomplished something. It actually accomplished something. It appeased the wrath of God against human sin. Foolishness to the Greeks. Folly to the unbelieving, to those who are perishing. What a, what madness are you saying? We preach Christ and Him crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the called then, there's that word again, are transferred from the empty realm of human wisdom, which does not save, that does not save, to the realm of God where they are blameless and without sin. It has a, the cross has a real effect. It transfers somebody from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son to those who are the called. Remember how we are defining, very simply defining this idea of called, making you what you, making you what you, um, something that you once weren't. You are now forgiven. You once were unforgiven and the wrath of God God was your enemy. Now you're not, now he's not. Now he's your father. To the called, the wisdom and power of God. We preach Christ and him crucified. See, Paul does not persuade that the cross comports with human logic or that belief results in the best interests of the hearers. He simply proclaims what what God has done. In other words, I'm not here to convince you by great logic or great reason or eloquent speech. I'm here to placard Christ crucified. As we go on, we'll see Paul use logic and reason. He's just not relying upon his eloquent speech as the means by which we'll persuade people. He is not some... uh, charismatic wordsmith who through his eloquent speech everybody says yeah I'm, I'm into that no I'm just placarding Christ nor is he saying if you believe you'll have a much better life there is some benefit in it for you um, in this life and you will be a much better person you will have all the things that you desire you will be a better boss and a better husband and, a, and, a, and you know you're just going to be awesome It's all about you. No. Because of the cross, your sins are forgiven and God's wrath is no longer against you. He is no longer your enemy, but rather he is your friend. Actually, he is your father and he's given you an inheritance. How about that? Then he goes on. He says, consider your calling, brothers. There's that word again. 
The Bible talks about two different types of calling. There is what we refer to as the general call. That's kind of what I'm doing right here. When Christ preached to multitudes, that would be a general call. When George Whitfield preached to thousands, that would have been a general call. The call goes out, and it goes out across the world. But then there's a specific call, what we call the effectual call. That is the call that actually has an effect. It actually does something. It actually saves. There's the general and the effective. Consider your calling. That is when you heard the gospel and God changed your heart and you repented of your sins and called upon his name. All of you have probably experienced both the general and the effective call. There was, I'll just speak personally, but I'll bet you many of you can relate to this. There were many of times before I became a Christian where people preached the gospel to me. They called me to repent of my sins. It was a general call. It had no effect. None whatsoever. Well, you could say they're planting seeds, but I rejected it. It did not result in salvation. And then one day, one night, I don't even know if it was that eloquently stated, but the call had an effect. And I called upon the name of the Lord and I was actually saved. I actually was declared a child of God in that moment. Consider your calling, brethren, not the general call. Consider your calling when God changed you from one thing into another. He changed you from a, a, a dead in your trespasses and sins to being made alive together with Him. Consider that. Think about that. Consider your calling. We, we need to ask, what, look, I want you to think about what is the basis for this call? It is not, so he says, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to change the wise. Consider your calling. That is God's effectual call that actually changed you into something you were not. In other words, the basis for this call is not your uniqueness. It is not your gifting. It is not your wisdom. It is not your power. It is not your rank. It is not your ethnicity. It is none of that. You, in fact, Paul says, were social nobodies. But the creator of the universe called you to himself. Consider that. On what basis did the creator of the universe call you? I'm going to get to that. You can probably already guess. Folks, kings and governors choose the smartest and the best. Harvard law firms and financial institutions, they look for the person graduating at the top of their class, and not only those who graduate at the top of their class, but those who have a pedigree. Even if you're brilliant, they may not want you because your pedigree is not up to their standards. But the God of the universe chose you not because you were powerful, not because you were of a noble birth, not because you were wise or you 
fit into any worldly standard. No rank, no pedigree, no IQ, no influence, rejected by the socially elite, but called by God. Consider that. Why? To show the foolishness of wisdom and that God alone is wise. See, God chooses social nobodies who then end up turning the world upside down, actually right side up. Not by means of human ability, but by the power of the gospel. Why? Nobody can boast. Why am I a Christian? Why am I a Christian? Am I a Christian because I made the right choice? God said, here's life and here's death. Which one are you going to choose? Well, I made the right choice, so I stand before God. How come I'm getting in? Because I made the right choice. I made a better choice than my neighbor. No. God chooses social nobodies who turn the world upside down so that no one can boast. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. We've mentioned this a little bit in our Bible study this morning. Sometimes we we think it's awesome when a celebrity or a musician or an actor or a sports figure gets saved and we think this is going to be, be amazing. Meanwhile, the kid with Down syndrome comes to know Christ and God says, that's my guy. That's my gal. That's who I'm choosing. The foolish thing. I'm going to confound the wise. Not that God doesn't save sports figures or or celebrities or singers or popular people. God saves people from every class of society. But somehow we think that, well, if a celebrity gets saved, they'll have this great platform. Why? That no one can boast. And then look at verse 30. This is salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is the Lord. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? Why are you in Christ Jesus? Because God. Because of him, you are in Christ. Not your wise choice, not your moral superior, but by God's sovereign calling. Consider your calling. By him, you are in Christ. And so therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What do I have to proclaim? Am I smarter than somebody else? No. Do I have a better rank? Am I a greater influencer? What do I have that my unbelieving neighbor does not have? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Entrance into the presence of God is not granted due to a better choice, but by God's will. So the one who is in Christ can only boast of glory, can only boast of God. All glory be to God and God alone. He alone saves. I'll conclude with this. The cross is central to our faith. The cross is central to our faith. There is no crossless Christianity. And on the cross, Jesus actually paid the penalty for sin. What this demands is it demands that we recognize that we've sinned. And that God is not okay with us as we are. Well, God just loves me as I am. No, God's wrath is against you just as you are. You're going, well, I don't like that idea. I don't like the fact that God's wrath. I don't think God's wrath will. No, God's wrath will. How do I know? Because of the cross. 
Christ bore the wrath of God on your behalf. The cross and its horrors demonstrate our need. Christ bore that. God is not okay with us as we are. That's why he makes us new creations. That's why he says you need to be born again. I'm not good with how you are. I'm going to make you something else. I'm calling you to be a saint. You are not a saint now, but by my calling, you will become something you are not. And that is a saint, a holy one, one set apart. Set apart for what? Set apart for me, the holy God of the universe. We are called, so the cross is central to our faith. Second, we are called by God. Merit, rank, goodness are not conditions that bring salvation. Rather, God saves without condition. In fact, God even saves nobodies. Finally, salvation is the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Folks, because of him, as Paul says, because of him, you are in Christ. Our Father, we come before you this morning and we give you praise and thanks for the cross. It is the power of, it is the power of wisdom of God. And it shames human wisdom and reason. Not that there isn't anything good in human reason and wisdom. We just can't count on it. It doesn't save anybody. Christ saves. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to placard Christ and the cross, Christ crucified. Have mercy upon us this day, Father, if there are any here today who end up listening to this, who realize that they are that God is not okay with them that they need somebody to deliver them from God's wrath, that they would look to Christ. Look to Him. Look to Christ. See Him crucified. He bore in His body your sins. I pray that they would repent, that is, turn from their sins and turn to you, and then follow after you. They would lay down their life, take up their cross, and follow after you. And in so doing, Lord God, all of us together would turn this world upside down or actually right side up. And we give you praise and we give you thanks. For Christ's sake, amen. Let's stand and let's sing joyfully.
Yeah. <clears throat> Amen. And now it's, we want to bless one another as we go. Our benediction is on the screen. We can read it together, but let's bless one another. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. I pray that you trust in the Lord and you are blessed. We're dismissed.